Um, we have been going through, um, we're in our 14th week, 14th week of this series that we're doing, going through the book of Acts. Uh, 36 more weeks we're doing this because this is a 50-week process. The entire year, 2022, we're committing to this important book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, and then you have the book of Acts, which details the beginnings of the early church, right? And uh, so we're in our 14th week, and in that time, we've been, we've been talking about a whole number of um, aspects related to this book. And today, we are going to be looking at the end of chapter 9, chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to chapter 9 in Acts. And as you're doing that, let me just kind of set the stage a little bit. Last week, we talked about Paul. Uh, in, in, at this time, his name is Saul. His name changes later on. Uh, but Paul um, was out to destroy the followers of Jesus. If you remember, and maybe you've heard this before if you weren't uh, with us last week, uh, Paul was, was against anybody who would claim that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Not only was he against them, but he was seeking out followers of Jesus with the intent to imprison them and to then see them killed. I mean, he was serious, dead set on this. And he was pursuing them all the way to Damascus, which was many miles from Jerusalem. And as he's traveling to Damascus, uh, Jesus encounters him. And we forget, and we mentioned this last week, that in that moment that Jesus appears and makes himself present to Paul and his companions, that was not the moment that Paul was transformed. That was not the moment. That moment came later when Paul went to Damascus. His companions led him to a place in Damascus. And, and then Jesus told Paul that somebody would come to him. So then what happened? What happened is the Holy Spirit spoke to a man by the name of Ananias and said, listen, you know that guy that wants to imprison and kill all the followers of Jesus? Yeah, I want you to go to his house because he's here in Damascus. And I want you to tell him about Jesus because he's going to do great things for my name. And Ananias goes, he goes. Now this is actually a mirror of what happens at the end of Acts chapter eight. If you remember, we talked about um, who was the individual who went out into Samaria. What was his name? Philip. Philip went out into Samaria to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, same thing. Holy Spirit told Philip, go. I have, some, I have a plan for you. I want, I, have, I want you to share with others Jesus Christ. I want you to go this way. And so Philip does and he encounters an Ethiopian who is traveling from Jerusalem back to what, what, what is now the Sudan and the Holy Spirit speaks to him again. He says, go, I want you to tell that person about Jesus. So right away, we need to remember, followers of Jesus are commanded to go. Many times, you know, we think that, that outreach or telling others about Jesus is standing still and waving our arms 
as, as much as we possibly can to make it obvious and visible to others and saying, hey, come to me. Come over here. Or we, we just kind of settle down and we nestle down and we sit down and we just hope that something's going to fall into our laps. But that's, that's not what Acts reveals to us. Instead, when the Holy Spirit uh, calls us, he tells us to go, to not sit still. Remember, a number of weeks ago, I compared the church to what marine animal? Fish. A shark. What happens when a shark stops swimming? It dies. See, when a church becomes too comfortable, it becomes complacent, and when it becomes complacent, it becomes ineffective, and when a church becomes ineffective, it dies. We have to be on the move. The church is meant to be on the move. Followers of Jesus are meant to be on the move. This shouldn't be a destination, this place that we call North Haven Church. This should be a launching pad. So now we're in Acts, at the later portion of Acts. Ananias has gone to Paul. Paul has received transformation. He's received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. But now things take a different turn when we get further into Acts chapter 9. Now we end up going from Paul and looking at somebody else that we had encountered earlier in Acts, Peter. Now Peter, this is, for those of you who don't know, that's totally fine. Peter was one of the 12 disciples whom Jesus called in the Gospels, right? Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times. Peter was the one that Jesus said that uh, Peter will have the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We talked about what that meant earlier on in our series. Peter was the one who, with John, was preaching the gospels of Jesus and was being threatened before persecution took place. And remember in Acts chapter 2, Luke, the author of Acts, tells that many incredible things happened amid the early church. If we look at Acts 2.43, what does it say? It says, they devoted, they being the followers of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And so the stories that we're going to be looking at here in Acts chapter 9 are just, just a little bit of a, of a glimpse of some of these amazing things that occurred. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to first uh, read this entire passage that we're looking at here today, um, Acts 9, 32 through 42. There won't be anything on the screen if you have your Bibles, I just want you to follow along in your Bibles, or if you don't, you can just listen. But starting with verse 32 in Acts 9, it says this. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat 
Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, that is Aeneas, who has now healed, and turned to the Lord. Verse 36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Verse 39, Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. And in verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet, and then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. All right, we're going to parse this out. So starting again with verse 32 through 35. Let's read this again on the screen. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now it's been a while since we talked about since we talked about Peter. Now the reason why Peter is touring the, the countryside is because of what happened at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. If you recall, Stephen, Stephen, a follower of Jesus, was killed. Remember that? He was stoned to death by the Jewish officials. And on that very day, in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, on that very day, great and tremendous persecution came about in Jerusalem against followers of Jesus. And so followers of Jesus were then forced to scatter, really flee for their lives. And they scattered out of Jerusalem into the areas of Judea and Samaria. So the followers of Jesus that were once um, primarily in Jerusalem were now really all over the place. And so Peter, as one of the heads of the church, sought to connect with these followers. So he's traveling. He's traveling to Lydda. Now, if we look at a map, which you don't have, but let me do my best um, charades. Um, you have, you have uh, Jerusalem right here, okay? And then 12 or 25 miles, sorry, 25 miles to the west, you would have Lydda, okay? So not too far, but if you're traveling by foot, maybe that's a little ways. 
The biggest thing, though, that I want you to notice in these first few verses, 32 to 35, is what it says in verse 34. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. See, even though the passage details Peter's actions, who is the one that's actually doing the healing? Even though Peter is the one in the flesh, who is the one who heals? It is Jesus. And and what's amazing is as a result of Jesus working through Peter, what does it say? That, That many throughout that area and Lydda and neighboring Sharon Turn to the Lord. Receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because of the healing that took place with Aeneas. All right, let's move on. Verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. If my kids were in the room, they would go, Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Okay, let's go back to the map. All right, so you got Jerusalem here to the west, Lydda, 25 miles. 12 more miles to the west, you have Joppa, which is right on the coast there of the Mediterranean Sea. So... Again, not too far. As we look at these verses, it's interesting to note that um, Jesus' followers, upon Tabitha's death, they prepared or washed her body, but then put her in an upstairs room. That was not customary. What they did instead was they washed the body, put them in an upstairs room. Instead, if... If they had conceded to Tabitha's death, they would have anointed her with oil and buried her. But there was anticipation. There was expectation. I mean, this was a tremendous time. And we're talking about months removed from Jesus having risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. There are tremendous signs and wonders that are happening all over the place. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is an explosion. And look at the faith that they had. These Jesus followers held out hope for Tabitha's miraculous healing, and they sent for Peter, who was nearby. So, verses 39 through 42. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to where Tabitha was, and all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. And turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. In verse 41, he, Peter, took her by the hand and helped her to her feet, and then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And then this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. 
just like with Aeneas. Luke, the author of Acts, makes it abundantly clear who is doing the healing. What is the first thing that Peter does? He gets on his knees and prays. Prays to his Lord and to his Savior, Jesus Christ. And then what was the result with both of these occurrences, with Aeneas and then with Tabitha? What was the result? Many people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Many. The healing of Tabitha and the healing of Aeneas was not the purpose of these miracles. What was? That many would turn to the Lord. You know, we tend to forget something um, when we look at these miraculous healings all throughout Scripture. There are amazing stories, fantastic stories of people uh, miraculously being cured from whatever ailment, and especially with Tabitha, basically being given back life. But when we look at people like Tabitha, when we look at people like Aeneas, even people like Lazarus, right, that Jesus rose from the dead, what happened with each of these individuals eventually? They died. So there, wasn't, there isn't healing happening here that prevented death entirely. This is a momentary healing, a temporary healing. Who is the only one who could and can provide eternal healing? Jesus. That's why it's so important for Peter, and it needs to be important for us, but for Peter in these stories to to make Jesus the central figure. Because it was the demonstration of this power that caused many people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and thus they were all eternally healed. Within these accounts in Acts chapter 9, we see that even though Peter is performing these great signs and wonders, it's Jesus doing the work through Peter. We looked at this before in verse 34. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. And then again in Acts 9, 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. He got down on his knees and prayed. Acts is, an, is a tremendous book. It's an amazing account of the early church and its growth and commitment to, to serve the Lord. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we are called to be God's witnesses to the world. But this is, this is what we, um, we tend to do, okay, as individuals, if, uh, as believers, followers of Jesus, and as a church, uh, we, we tend to look at this book, the Bible, in a very um, uh, s- peculiar way, 
And maybe we wouldn't testify to, to this uh, consciously. I think that it much more happens subconsciously. But we take this book and we, we see all of this stuff that happens before Matthew chapter 1. And we say this right here, this is pre-Jesus. And then what we do is we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we say, this part right here, that's Jesus. And then we go to Acts chapter 1, all the way to Revelation, we say, this is post-Jesus right here. But what are we doing when we do that? We're saying that all, all of this Bible, that that's, that's just Jesus right there. That's a problem. Today's Palm Sunday. This is the, de- the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly as, as the crowds were chanting, uh, shouting, thank you, Hosanna. A week later, many from these crowds are now shouting, crucify him. We tend to categorize the Bible and we say that all of this stuff is before Jesus. This is the stuff that is Jesus. And then this is the stuff after Jesus. And we forget this whole dang thing is about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Again, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. This is right away the beginning of Acts. Who's saying this? Jesus. I was talking to an individual a few weeks ago, uh, about a month ago, and it was not somebody from the church here, but I was telling them about this, this journey that we're going on. Um, we're going through 50 weeks, the book of Acts. Um, and this, this person was like really, you know, really excited, and they were like, wow, yeah, that sounds fantastic. You know, it's, it's just amazing that, you know, here you, you go from the Gospels where Jesus is there in the flesh and he's present. And then at the end of the Gospels and the beginning of Acts, uh, Jesus rises from the dead and then he ascends into heaven. And he's basically telling the church, hey, now it's up to you. That's just so cool. And I'm listening to this and I'm, I'm nodding. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And then later that day, I was thinking about it. I was like, that's not right. That's not right. Acts, it is all about Jesus. Jesus is not Elvis. He hasn't left the room. Jesus is here and accounted for. Do you know how many times Jesus is mentioned in the first nine chapters of Acts alone? 
If you look at other mentions, check this out. The church is mentioned approximately about 50 times. Peter is mentioned 36. The Holy Spirit is mentioned approximately 32 times. Paul, 18. Philip, 16. John, 15. Stephen, 10. You know how many times Jesus is mentioned in the first nine chapters of Acts alone? 87 times. This whole thing is about Jesus. He is in every nook and cranny of this important book. What we tend to do, to be quite honest, as a church, is um, imagine, again, let me pull down my, okay. Imagine right here we had the church. Big letters, big bold letters, the church. What the church tends to do, what we are very prone to do, is to have the church right there in the middle, and then all these arrows are coming off the church, right? As they're going out, arrows that are going out. And at the end of each of those arrows is Jesus. And the church takes that posture. We're like, okay, here we are. We're going to give Jesus. We're going to send Jesus. Now that might sound good, but if you think about it, who's standing still? The church. It's not going anywhere. It's becoming stagnant. It's becoming comfortable. Ineffective then. And will eventually die. So what is the remedy? Replace the church with Jesus. Jesus in big bold letters right there in the middle. And all these arrows that are coming off of Jesus. And what's at the end of all those arrows? You and me. The church. It's Jesus doing the work through us. As we remain committed to being on the move, to go. As the worship team comes out, um, the effectiveness of Jesus being revealed and present in the life of someone who is unsaved relies on you. When somebody sees Jesus for who he is, when somebody experiences Jesus, the Savior, the light of the world, the only way, the only hope, the only life, they cannot resist him. So why is it then, how is it that so many resist Jesus? It's because they're not seeing Jesus. How does the world see Jesus? How? Through us. 
through our words, through our actions, our posture, our interactions, our relationships. We are the witnesses to the world. How is our witness? How is your witness? How is mine? We've been given this mandate. We've been given this task. You can argue, you can wrestle with the task, with the mandate. It doesn't change the fact that whether people receive, see the Savior and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior depends solely and completely on our witness. Let's pray. Father, in this time um, today and then the last 13 weeks, for me personally, Lord, I confess that this has messed me up. This has been uh, so utterly challenging and uncomfortable in a lot of ways. As, as I've opened myself up completely to you and have invited you to interact with me, to, to do what David says in Psalm 139, to uh, see if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. I'm so thankful for uh, the, the rattling of the cage that's happening in my life. And I hope and I pray that everybody that is, that is connected here today and that this church would have the same posture. And that we would understand that the salvation of many, the eternal healing of many, depends on our witness and that we would be called and that we would accept the responsibility to go and to show others truly who Jesus is. Pray this in your name. Amen. Oh, man. Let's say this together. Our creed, we are the church. We have received power from the Holy Spirit. We are Jesus' witness to the world, and we will give the love of Jesus to each other, to our community, and to the ends of the earth, because we are the church. Amen. Amen. We'll see you this weekend. God bless.